as we continue our exploration of the life of the great patriarch Abraham, the father of our faith. Uh, Now, we know that every single scripture is important, but there are certain scriptures that stand out more because they have a unique and essential role in, the, in our understanding of God's story of redemption. So if, if chapters of the scriptures are like a mountain range, there are certain chapters that tower above others. So, so when you climb them and you get to the peak, you can look around and you can see the entire range more clearly in all directions, and you get a vision of, of the entire range that you never had seen before. Genesis 15 is one of those great towering peaks and one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. And we're going to spend this week and next week on this mountain, and hopefully in doing so, we'll, we'll see the entire range of Scripture better and bask in the glory of the truths we find. There. So let's get our climbing gear on and let's get started. Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 1 and read on down through verse 6. The word of the Lord says After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Father, what a great and glorious scripture. I pray that you would help this uh, poor and weak and feeble preacher uh, do it justice, Father. Help me to serve the church this morning in the strength that God supplies. And help my brothers and sisters here to to hear and understand and believe and receive and enjoy and love the Word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may be seated. One of the biggest challenges Christians face is the tension of living in the gap between the promises of God and the full fulfillment of those promises. Theologians call it the already and the not yet. So, for example, Jesus came and said that the kingdom of God is here, and yet Jesus teaches us to pray, let your kingdom come. Uh, there is this sense in, in that God is certainly moving and working in the world and in our lives right now, but, but on the other hand, we haven't reached the glorious ending of the story. We find ourselves in the gap between promise and fulfillment. We're we're promised a time where there'll be no more suffering and sorrow and sickness and death, and yet, guess what? We suffer and we grieve and we get sick and we die. Even in the smaller scale, in just day-to-day life, we feel that tension. God promises to provide for all of our needs, and and, and it's hard to see how that's going to happen when you're looking at your expenses versus your budget. Uh, God promises strength to to make it through your day to do what He has called you to do, and yet you wake up and you feel so weak. 
And so you don't even know how you're going to make it through the next hour, let alone the next 24. There are all kinds of promises in the Bible for God's people, and one of the reasons we struggle with fear and doubt and anxiety is because it seems like the fulfillment of God's promises is a long time coming. A long time coming. And the waiting is hard and it's painful. And when we look around at our circumstances, it's hard to see God's good purposes coming to pass. And so we start asking, what abouts? Uh, I know you promised all these things, but, but what about? What about this, God? Uh, what about what I see around me? What about when it, when it appears that the evidence is pointing in a direction that is opposite your promises? And in those moments, we don't understand how in the world God is going to bring about His, His good purposes, how He's going to bring those things to pass. And so, our text today shows us how God deals with His struggling people, in particular with with Abram and what he's going through, and I I think we'll be able to identify quite a bit with Abram and hopefully draw some encouragement from how God deals with Abram. The first thing I want us to notice in our text today is God's encouragement in verse 1. Abram was a man who knew what it was like to live in the gap between promise and fulfillment. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were in Genesis 12, and God made Abram incredible promises. Promises of a, of a land, of offspring, that from his offspring would come a great nation, and, and through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. Now, as wonderful and as glorious as those promises are, and, and despite the fact that in Genesis 12, Abram leaves his home and his family uh, to embrace God's call on his life, when we come to chapter 15, Abram is struggling with a temptation to fear. Look at verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram. Now, our immediate question should be, what would Abram be fearing at this point? Well, verse 1 says, after these things. After what things? Well, after, after these things, that, that points us back to the events in, in Genesis 14, where, where Abram got caught up in a large conflict between nine kings and one of those kings, Ketelemer, we talked about him a couple weeks ago, he invaded Canaan, he went on a rampage, he sacked the city of Sodom, he kidnapped all of the people, including Abram's nephew Lot. And so Abram and his men, though outnumbered, chased down Ketelemer, ambushed him at night in a surprise attack, defeated his army, and rescued all the people and all the spoils. Well, that's wonderful, right? But guess what? Abram now has a powerful new enemy, and revenge and retribution were the order of the day in the ancient Near East. What's more, not only had he made an enemy of this eastern king, but he'd snubbed and insulted the king of Sodom by refusing uh, the king's reward of all the spoils. Remember, Abram told him, I don't, I don't want your stuff. I'm not taking a single thing from you lest you go around saying that, that, that I made Abram rich, so take your stuff and go home. Abram in that moment was trusting that God would prosper him, and he wanted God to have all of the glory for Abram's success in the battle, so he turns down that reward. So now Abram is vulnerable to to evil kings near and far, and he's turned down the rewards of warfare. So there's some reason to be concerned. There's some reason to be afraid. And God's response to Abram's fear is a promise of his presence, where there's protection 
and safety. And so in verse 1, God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Abram needed reminding that his life was not in the hands of a two-bit tyrant, but in the hands of a good and sovereign God. All throughout the Bible, again and again, in different circumstances and situations, God is constantly reminding His people to fear not. Why? Because there are a million apparent reasons in the world for you and I to be afraid. We're not afraid of an invading king, but if I were to ask you this morning to list what you fear, many of you could fill up a page with things. And some of you could probably write a book. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of disease. We're afraid of not having enough money. We're afraid of being disliked. We're afraid that we can't handle that looming trial or difficulty coming our way. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of being alone. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We are a trembling and fearful people in a scary, threatening world surrounded by all kinds of potential threats and fears that can discourage us and depress us and paralyze us. And so God has to constantly remind His people to not be afraid. And the basis for His command to fear not is never rooted in our own strength and ability to make ourselves unafraid. It's not like He's saying, well, well, uh, fear not, buck up, you can do this, you can make it. You can power your way through this. It's never how God does it. When He commands us to not be afraid, that command is always rooted in the presence of God in our lives. And that's why He says here, Abram, stop being afraid. And why? Because I am your shield. I'm your shield. He does the same thing with all of God's children, including you. I love the promise in Isaiah 41. If, if you struggle with fear and anxiety, this is one that you need to write down and memorize. It's in Isaiah 41.10, where God says to His people, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Or how about Hebrews 13? Verses 5 and 6, it reminds us that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, when you fear the Lord, guess what? You can be fearless. If the strongest person in the universe is for you and not against you, Friends, that's a game changer when you realize that, and that truth is rooted in your soul. And He promises to help you and uphold you through everything that you're going through, so fear not. So God reminds Abram of his protection, but look what He says next. He says, your reward shall be very great. Now, again, in the context here, think about the last chapter, Abram had just turned down the massive reward that the king of Sodom had tempted him with, all of these these earthly riches and treasures. But after rejecting the treasures of the world, God assures Abram that a reward is coming to him that is better than anything that the king of Sodom could have offered him. Part of the life of faith for you and for me is is clinging to the belief that what the Lord has for us is superior to anything else that we could acquire. 
In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, I read it earlier in the service, it describes faith not only as believing that God exists, but that He rewards those who seek Him. And we read verses like that, and we need verses like that, because let's be honest, don't you sometimes grow weary in your pursuit of the Lord? Do you ever have moments, ever have moments where, you're, where you're just looking around and you see unbelievers and they are living for the world and they are pursuing the sinful pleasures of the world and they're acquiring money and popularity and earthly acclaim and they seem like they're having just a great old time and sometimes it seems like the road of unbelief is much easier than the road of belief. Perhaps you can relate to Asaph who in Psalm 73, he confessed his envy of the life of unbelievers. He said in Psalm 73, 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. That's coming out of envy. In other words, he's saying that, man, it really seems like unbelievers have a better life, a better reward than the godly. In fact, he goes on to say in the next verse, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. It's almost hard to believe that verse is in the Bible. I mean, Asaph is a a godly man. And he's saying that. I love the raw honesty of the Scriptures. He's struggling. He's saying, I feel like I've been following after God and it's in vain. That there's nothing to show for it. You ever feel that way? But God here reminds Abram that in God, there is a great reward. And what is the reward? Well, certainly it has everything to do with those uh, wonderful promises of God, right? Of land, of offspring, of global blessing through Him. But it's more than that, I think. Uh, In the Hebrew, which Genesis 15 was written in, in the Hebrew, the syntax of verse 1 could be translated either as, your reward shall be very great, or that the Lord Himself would be His very great reward. I believe that's how the King James translates it. Now, regardless of the rendering, it seems to me that at the heart of it, the greatest reward for Abram is the Lord Himself. None of the other promises of God actually matter if Abram doesn't get God. Every promise is bound up in a relationship with God. And God is the greatest treasure, the greatest thing that you could have, the greatest reward. The riches of Sodom and the pleasures of this world are mere trinkets compared to having God Himself. You know, Charles Spurgeon preached an entire sermon just on the second half of verse 1 about the reward that is God. Yeah, that's Spurgeon for you. And, And in the sermon, he says... The reward for Abram is not the land of Canaan. It's not a posterity. It's not anything that God will give him. It is God himself. Spurgeon says, the Lord is our portion, and he is such a portion as excels everything else that we might have. John Calvin writes that in calling himself his reward, God teaches Abram to be satisfied with himself alone, with God alone. This is what the Apostle Paul was getting at in Philippians chapter 3, and he was recounting the the worldly successes that he had had, and the the acclaim, and the applause of men, and the prideful self-righteousness, and all these things that he was getting in the world. But then Paul says, 
I count everything, I count all those things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I might gain Christ. And going back to Psalm 73... Asaph himself, after struggling with his envy of the wicked, he comes to his senses, and he realizes, no, no, the apparent good life of the wicked is just an illusion, because in the end, they're really going to miss out, and and having God is truly the superior treasure. Asaph says in Psalm uh, 73, 25, and 26, he says about God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion, my inheritance. When we think of inheritance, we, we think of something extremely valuable that is coming to us. Well, when God is your inheritance, folks, it doesn't get any better than that. And so Asaph is comforted as he comes to remember that he had the very best thing all along, which is God himself. And so we ourselves, as we live in the gap between promise and fulfillment, must grasp that even now God is our very great reward. Not just heaven, but now. Even on this side of heaven, we're way better off than those who have exchanged the treasure of God for the plastic cheap trinkets of the world. Now, as encouraging as those things should be, guess what? Abram still struggles. You know why? Because he's a lot like you and me. It's hard for us to rest in God, and we are impatient, and we're full of all kinds of questions and concerns, and whatabouts. And so as we move forward in the text, we come to Abram's struggle. Abram's struggle. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So as as fearful as he may have been about retribution from Ketelamir, Abram's primary concern, his primary uh, fears, revolve around the fulfillment of God's specific promise of a son. God, you said you were going to make me into a great nation in the future, But what about my present situation? How can I be a nation if I can't have just one child? I'm old. My wife is infertile. This is impossible. I don't understand the promise in relation to my life, God. And if I'm childless, then my chief servant, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to be my heir. Does that that mean I'm going to have to adopt him? Is that how this is going to work, God? I wonder if you've noticed a pattern in how God has been dealing with Abram. Back in the beginning, God calls Abram to leave his homeland and go to a new land. And he says, I'm going to go to a new land that I'm going to give you, Abram. And Abram says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later. And God says, you're going to have a son, Abram. And Abram says, when? I'll tell you later. I know, I, I, I know uh, Abram, that you're old and your wife is barren, but your offspring will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. How? I'll tell you later. 
In chapter 22, spoiler alert, he eventually does have a son, but in chapter 22, uh, God commands Abram to kill him. Why? I'll tell you later. That's the pattern. That's the pattern. God, God calls Abram to step out in faith, and he never gives him all the details. He doesn't lay out the complete step-by-step itinerary in advance of everything that's going to happen and why. And we don't like that, and we have a hard time with that. But consider, brother or sister, that maybe God knows better than you or me what we really need. That, that God knows better than you or me how to, how to shape us, how to help us, how to strengthen us, how to, how to build us up and conform us to the image of Christ. And here's the thing. If we're struggling with doubt and anxiety and trust, we think that getting more intricate details about all the things that we're worried about is going to help. That's what we think. But it doesn't work that way. You give an anxious person person a bunch of details, and guess what? Now they have even more stuff to worry about. The answer to anxiety and fear is not details. And we see this in play as early as childhood. You gather up your little kids for a vacation. You promise to take them to Disney World. And you put them in the car. And you start driving down the highway. And you haven't been on the road for more than 40 minutes. And what question starts coming from the back seat of the car? Y'all know it! <laughs> All the parents know what I'm talking about. Are we there yet? And how do you respond? I mean, well, some of you might be feeling snarky. We'll get there when we get there. But how do you respond? Do you respond by saying, well, according to my calculations and looking at the GPS and and taking in all these other factors, uh, uh, we're going to get there in in so many hours and minutes and seconds, and and we'll probably take a few bathroom breaks, so maybe add, add about half an hour to that. We'll, we'll probably stop to eat for lunch and, and for dinner maybe, and so we'll have to add some time for that. And, and then after calculating the, the mileage from here to there and considering the gas mileage of our particular vehicle, and, and there's going to be at least this many stops for, for gas, and, and there's some road construction once we cross the border and get into Florida, so we've got to think about that. And so if you add all of that up, that's when we get there. Now, does that help your kids? Absolutely. Does that solve the problem? What does it do? It opens up a Pandora's box of 50 more questions, doesn't it? Well, when, when, where are we going to eat? Can we do Chick-fil-A? Oh, wait a minute. It's Sunday. Well, can we, can we, do, can we do this place instead? Uh, are we going to eat inside the restaurant? Are we going to sit down in there? Or are we going to go through the drive-thru? Are we going to sit and eat in the car? Are we going to get in the highway and then eat while we're driving? Uh, will I be able to get a milkshake? Uh, Will we play at the playground there? Uh, On and on it goes. Details don't help. Because little kids have no awareness, no understanding of time. So what do you do instead? You, You turn their eyes away from the details. And you turn their eyes towards what's coming. No, we're not there yet. But we're going to get there later. And when we get there, it's going to be awesome. We're going to have a great time. And I promise that I'm going to get you there. That's often how God deals with us. We are like little children, and we keep saying to God, are we there yet? Are, are we, are, when are we going to be there? How, how are we going to get there? 
God, what's going to happen in the meantime? God, you said these difficulties in my life are going to work for my good, but how? I don't see it. Uh, We have a problem with time. We struggle in the gap between promise and fulfillment, and, and we get fearful and anxious like Abram. But notice how God responds to Abram. He doesn't give him a long list of intricate details. He, he doesn't peel back the curtain and show Abram every little step. Instead, he turns Abram's eyes away from those things, and he turns them back to the promise, to his word. He doesn't give details. He, he gives an illustration that makes the promise more vivid, that puts the promise of his word in sharper focus. And so that leads to God's assurance. Verses 4 and 5. God says, verse 4 says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now many of us in the modern Western world have no concept of what nighttime actually looks like because you've got artificial light everywhere. Uh, You've got street lights and you've got headlights and you've got lights coming from stores and lights coming from from houses and and all all of these lights that are coming. Now some of you country people have a better idea of what I'm talking about. Kind of living out in the middle of nowhere or maybe going on a long hike somewhere far away or on a hunting trip or, or something like that. When I lived in Alaska, that was about as the middle of nowhere as you could get. And, and on a crisp, cold winter night, you could just go out and you could look up and you would see just all of these stars. So magnificent and breathtaking and seemingly without number. But I want you to think about what God is doing here. God, God's not answering all of Abram's little questions about all the little details. God doesn't feel the need to explain himself, and, and he knows Abram doesn't need that. Instead, what does God do? He simply double downs on his promise, on his word, and he uses a vivid illustration to do it, to turn the attention of Abram back to the promise, to the word. God is stooping down. He's condescending himself to Abram's level and giving him a picture to drive home to Abram his intentions. He's giving him the promise of his word. This is what's coming, Abram. We're not there yet, but check this out. It's coming, and when it does, it's going to be more glorious than you could possibly imagine. God just keeps putting Abram's focus back on the word, as if what Abram needs the most to be lifted out of discouragement and fear with renewed strength and faith is not the answers to all of his questions, but simply the word of God. Not that Abram, in gazing at the stars, is seeing the word of God. The stars are not the word, but they are a vivid illustration of the promises of God's word to help Abram better grasp and understand and appreciate and receive God's word. And and God works in this way not to make his promises more sure. That's impossible to do. How can you make a sure thing from God more sure? Instead, God does this to make you more sure of his promises. As Dale Davis writes, God gives you props to support your faith, gives you some crutches on which faith can go on walking. By the way, that's exactly what the Lord's Supper is for us. We'll take that, we'll do that next week. 
It's a graphic, vivid picture to help our faith. Not that the bread that we eat and the juice that we drink during communion is the actual body and blood of Christ, and not that the communion meal is the gospel, but the symbols of communion are meant to highlight the gospel with the intention of helping us see to a greater degree the promise of the gospel and God's word and thereby encourage us. See, this is how God constantly helps his struggling children by constantly turning their attention back to the promises of his word. It's there that we find comfort and strength and the assurance that we need. You know, so often, Christians are struggling with all kinds of fears and all kinds of anxieties, and you ask them about their personal Bible reading, and they haven't picked up their Bible in weeks. And if that's the case, no, no wonder so many believers struggle in their faith. Now, I don't want to be oversimplistic. I recognize there's all kinds of reasons we struggle in life, and there's more to it than, than, than cracking open your Bible. But friends, we can't get around the Word. Paul writes that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? The Word of God. We need the Word. That, that is the, the, one of the ingredients that builds up our faith, that strengthens our faith. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, He says, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Notice there that the psalmist's sense of hope is linked to the very word of God. And then he goes on to say, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Notice he says, this is my comfort in affliction. His source of comfort is not in the difficulty going away right now. Instead, even in the ongoing affliction, it's the promise of God's Word that sustains and brings the weary soul comfort and encouragement. And you see, that's what God is doing for Abram, bringing him back to the Word, to the promises, and he's using the glorious illustration of stars to emphasize that Word. So we have God's encouragement and Abram's struggle and then God's assurance, and then finally we see Abram's response, verse 6, and he believed the Lord... And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, if Genesis 15 is one of those towering mountains in the range of all the chapters of the Bible, then verse 6 is the absolute peak of that mountain. Text says, Abram believed the Lord. Now, this does not mean that this was Abram's conversion as if he had never had saving faith prior to this. In Genesis 12, Abram left his home country at the call of God, and Hebrews 11 says that Abram did that by faith. And so, what chapter 15, verse 6 is telling us is that, yes, certainly in that moment, staring up at the stars, Abram was encouraged and trusted God, but it's actually saying more than that. Verse 6 really is a a summary statement from the author, from Moses, giving a snapshot of Abram's entire relationship with God. One commentator writes that this was not the initial moment of faith. It was another instance of ongoing faith. It sums up his believing stance. In other words, though he struggled back in verses 2 and 3, Abram was still clinging to that same faith that he had back in chapter 12. Verse 6 is embedded in the middle of a chapter where Abram is having all kinds of questions and struggles. And the first half of the chapter is questions about a son, about offspring. We're going to see next week that the second half of the chapter is questions about the promise of a land. 
But right in the middle of this account of Abram's struggle, Moses interjects with an editorial statement in verse 6 as if he's saying, listen, don't think Abram was an unbeliever just because he was struggling in his faith. Abram was a believer, but Abram wasn't perfect. His faith wasn't perfect. Romans 4 tells us that Abram grew strong in his faith. In other words, his journey of faith was a process getting stronger, but it wasn't perfect. He struggled. He had questions, but he never utterly abandoned his faith. Chapter 15 isn't about the conversion of an unbeliever. It's about the struggle of a believer, the struggle of assurance, much like your own struggles he, he struggles, but he nevertheless believes. He's, he's like the man who came up to Jesus, and he was so desperate, and he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus helped the man. And here, God is patiently and gently helping Abram. And verse 6 tells us why Abram's faith was so crucial. text says, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is the first instance in the Bible where we have an explicit mention of one of the greatest doctrines in all the Bible, justification by faith, that we are saved by the grace of God through faith in God and not in the good works that we do. I, I say by grace, even though grace is not mentioned in the text, because for someone to reckon or count or credit something to someone is to say that that person doesn't in himself naturally have the thing that is credited to him. That's exactly what grace is. Abram is not inherently righteous. Abram is a sinner, like every single one of us. He deserves judgment. We've seen examples of him sinning, like in the second half of chapter 12 that we looked at a few weeks ago. We, we know that Abram was once a pagan moon worshiper who lived most of his life in total rebellion against God. And yet we find here, in the very first book of the Bible, a clear, explicit statement of an ungodly person being justified, being made right before God, being seen as righteous, so he doesn't have to go to hell and face God's judgment, but instead enjoys a personal relationship with the Lord God, walking in forgiveness. Now, this addresses one of the most, most common questions I've gotten over the years about the Bible from Christians, from church people, and that is the question, how were the people in the Old Testament saved before Jesus came? Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, Romans 4. Many people, many people will say that Old Testament people were saved by works, by keeping the law, and New Testament people are saved by grace. And then they'll say, thank God, we're now under grace, unlike those poor Old Testament people. It's a lot harder for them to get into heaven, I guess. But the New Testament debunks that notion, and, and it does so by using Abram as an example Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I would love just to kind of like keep going. Romans 4 is fabulous. There's so many great things in there, and I would encourage you at home to read that, study that on your own time. But so in, in, in the prior chapters, in Romans 1 through 3, Paul takes great pains to establish the guilt of all of mankind before God. And he demonstrates that because of our sin and guilt and our nature, it is absolutely impossible for anyone to be saved by being good because no one is good. And so if we can't be saved through righteousness, through being righteous, I should say, through us being righteous, then that must mean that if we're going to be saved, we must receive the righteousness of another if our own righteousness is is insufficient. And when you read on in Romans, in Romans chapter 5, Romans 5 explains how that happens. And you can turn there if you want. And, And Paul in Romans 5 describes two great heads of the human race, Adam and Jesus. Adam was the first man and the first sinner. And and all who come after Adam follow in his rebellious footsteps and we share in his guilt. And if you remain in Adam, connected to him as your representative, hell and condemnation are your destiny. But Jesus Christ comes into the world as the second man, the righteous man, the perfect man, and he dies for the ungodly, paying the death penalty and absorbing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners as a substitute. And he offers himself to man as a new representative. And so all who trust in Jesus are no longer in Adam, but in Christ. As it says in verse 2 of Romans 5, through him, through Christ, We have also obtained access, look at it, by faith into this grace in which we stand. You access grace by faith. It's faith that gives us access to the the saving grace of God. It's, It's faith that unites us to Christ. And once you are in Christ, not only is the price for your sin paid, But just as you once shared in the guilt of Adam, you now share in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And if you're now counted as righteous, you have full forgiveness and life and God as your portion and your inheritance and heaven as your home. And this is what Paul means when he writes down in verse 18 of Romans 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, right there, that one trespass, he's talking about Adam's trespass, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, now he's talking about the second man, Jesus, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I explained it this way in the membership class this morning. Uh, It's the great and beautiful exchange. Uh, Christ on the cross receives our sin, and God treats Him accordingly. And we, as we believe in Christ, we receive Christ's righteousness, and God treats us accordingly. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Isn't that a good exchange? I like that. And of course, 
the death of Christ is not the end of the story. He rises again because he's an innocent man. And as he conquers the grave, so all who trust in him will conquer the grave with him. But somebody might object, how can all that be true for Abraham when Jesus hadn't even come yet? How can Abraham be justified by Jesus before Jesus? The answer is by faith. Turn a few books over to Galatians chapter 3. Now, in Galatians, Paul is writing to a bunch of people who are being tempted to think that though they became justified by faith, they have to continue in the works of the law to remain justified. In other words, they believe that their salvation was a tag team effort between them and God. I believe in God at that moment, and I become saved. But now, though, it's not about faith. It's, it's about my efforts and, and, and keeping the law and making myself righteous. And Paul had to correct their error, and you'll never guess how he does it. Sure you will. He goes back to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? You think Paul liked that scripture? Here it is again. He loved Genesis. He goes on to say, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, now feel the magnitude of what Paul just wrote there. This is incredible. God preached something to Abram. And what did he preach? He preached the gospel to Abraham. The gospel. And you're saying, what? I I thought the gospel was like about what Jesus did. Precisely. What do you think the promises God gives to Abram are all about? They're all about Jesus. I'm going to give you offspring, Abram. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The promises of God to Abram center on offspring. The heartbeat of the book of Genesis, and really the, the, the whole Bible, is the promise of offspring. Genesis 3.15, you know that promise. There's going to be an offspring who's going to come and crush the head of Satan, bringing deliverance from the curse of sin, restoring the kingdom of God, and saving his people. That's a gospel promise. That was way before Abraham lived. And Jesus did those things. He came into the world. He crushed the head of the serpent and brought deliverance and salvation for his people. That's the gospel. And, and, and what does Genesis 15, 6 say about Abraham's response to the gospel? Abram believed God. Abram believed the gospel. How are Old Testament people saved? The same way New Testament people are saved. Through believing in the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. The cross, we got a cross right here. The cross stands at the center of human history. And on this side of the cross... 
Before Jesus came, we have the Old Testament people and the Old Testament saints. And then on the other side of the cross is us. And the Old Testament people over here, they hear the promise of the gospel. You can't see me over there. I'm poking my head over. You see, they hear the promise of the gospel. Something's coming. Something's good coming. Offspring's coming. Deliverance is coming. Messiah is coming. And they respond to the gospel and say, yes, I believe. And they look forward in advance to, to, to what God is going to do. They place their hope and their trust in that and not in themselves. And they are saved. And then what do we do here on this side? New Testament people like us, we, we, we look backwards now to, to what, what the offspring did and, and the accomplishment and the work of Christ. We look at that and we see that and we hear the promise and we believe and we rejoice. And we are saved through faith in that promise. And the blood of Christ covers all who by faith trusted in the past and covers all who will trust Him later. And therefore, everyone, everywhere, at all times, in all places, as they hear the promise of the gospel, can believe the gospel and be saved. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Abraham did not see all that we see. Right? We have the whole story. We're in a better position than Abraham. It should be easier to believe now after so much water has gone on under the bridge and we've seen so much of what God has done. We have it all here. But Abraham did see something. He saw a glimpse of what was to come and, and, and Jesus says he rejoiced in that. He was glad in that. He placed his faith in the gospel and it was counted to him as righteousness. Friends, the, the answer for Abram's struggles was not details about every little thing that God was going to do. The answer for Abram was to have his eyes put back on the promise of the gospel, to rejoice in the gospel, to revel in glory in his Redeemer and the great things that were coming through God's gospel promises. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, the call for you today is to have faith in God and his promises And regardless of your past, and regardless of your failures, and regardless of your sin, you too will be made counted righteous. And if you're a Christian brother or sister, as most of you in here are, maybe you feel like Abram, and you struggle, and you have questions, and you're asking the whatabouts, you're living in the gap between promise and fulfillment, and you're feeling that tension, and it's wearing you down. I want to encourage you this morning not by promising you answers to every little question that you have, but by directing your eyes back to the promise, back to the hope of the gospel. Because the gospel is the ultimate proof that God is for you and will provide for you everything that you need for your present circumstance, for your present trial. That's exactly what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 8 when he said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, we can see what God did for us in the gospel, and if he did something as amazing as offering up his own son, then we can rest assured that he is even now working on our behalf, giving us everything we need, making all of his other promises for us come true, bringing bringing to pass every good thing that he has promised right now and in eternity. And so, I pray that we as a church would be a church that is always resting 
on the promises of the Word of God and that our strength and hope would be in that. Let's pray.